Nothing. No? Really? Can we refer back to Peter's um, talk? Are you going to do that after? Or? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'd like to congratulate Peter on that, on that presentation. I've been watching for years now, and it's the best one I've seen. Um, when you talked about uh, a zero uh, discount rate is, uh, you know, assuming infinite demand. Yes. This is a very powerful, uh, you know, argument, I would say, you know, carried to the absurd extreme, just as zero interest or infinite interest. And of course, the flip side of that is that uh, zero discount means there is no propensity to hold the, uh, these instruments. If you don't have a discount, why hold them? So, th so there's, it loses its earning capacity. It doesn't earn anything. You mean interest then? I'm talking about discount. I'm talking about real bills. Well, zero discount. Zero discount means that why should I hold them? I, I'm not earning. I'm not. It's not. It's not appreciating. Oh, I thought you went to reference to con consumption. Well, consumption. You are holding the bill. Okay. Yes. Well, we got two guys here. One who is going to pay this, and the other one who's holding it and is earning to maturity, right? Hmm. So there's zero discount, there's zero earning. Okay, so that's exactly, I'm not saying that's what's going to happen, but that's the same assumption. It's like if zero interest means, uh, what is it, an infinite saving and so on, and the opposite. Mm -hmm. So now, we, the professor talked about slow moving bills drop out the bottom of this, this stream, and they don't, they're not real bills anymore, because they don't change hands, they don't circulate. But you could also say in the same way that the ones that have extreme high velocity fly out the top. Because if, you, if it changes hands once every 30 days, the discount is significant. But if it changes hands 10 times a day, it loses significance. Or if the discount rate is zero, you know, then you might as well pass it when you forget about, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, assigning it. So the professor was talking about the bill of the goldsmith, people were changing it around so often, you run out of room to send it forward to the next guy, right? Yeah. So it became a bearer instrument. Yeah. And this is exactly the same thing you're coming at from another point of view. If the discount rate disappears, it becomes a bearer instrument because it'll circulate so quickly. Yes. So now, then uh, this is kind of a transition from a real bill to a banknote or a, or a, a bill. And clearly, if the name goes off, it becomes a bearer instrument. But what I'm wondering is, what is your opinion on the uh, maturity date? Because the maturity date is irrelevant if there's no uh, appreciation of the value. It'll be the same value regardless of time. And yet, there should be an expiry, and it becomes kind of indefinite. So would anybody want to kick in on that a little bit? Um. A bill is, as it used to be in the days when it was still in 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 use, and um, I know of very few people who would go for a bill that was past its expiry date. People would go and cash that in because that's not an earnings instrument anymore. And you want to earn. 
the only thing is with a refinery gold refinery built on the goldsmith or you know goldsmith on the refinery that that is a, that is the limiting case you know where we're talking about gold coming into the system through the bill market well whether it's past its due date or not it is it, that has evolved into the bearer instrument that we know well this is what i'm getting huh? at. I, mean, you know, I think there's a bifurcation in the stream and it, it separates and the real bills stay in this moving stream and these other ones become banknotes. and yeah. that's the same thing professor was talking about that it's such a desirable instrument you don't even worry about appreciation so this is you, go, you mean going to a premium well it goes to to a flat value it becomes a banknote yes but that's that's where i'm getting at and you're coming at this from the decrease in discount which is you know, it's congruent with the speed up of circulation, so it all fits together. And these forces, so rather than the whole stream heading to zero, it will separate. And these bills will have no discount, and they become just plain banknotes. Or they, they would, comp they would always circulate. Uh, but the, the funny part is, of course, it, it's it's for an odd sum like twenty-two thousand seven hundred and twenty-one point something. That's right. Yeah. It be becomes odd. So, you know, rather than, than making it, keeping it on in circulation, mm. you know, you would go and cash it in. But nobody would be in a hurry. I guess my, I, my sort of trying to clarify it, what happens past due date, I mean, there's still yeah. an obligation. Whoever issued it is bound to pay it. Yes. But then you think it comes by that date, well, it's still... Well, even <laughs> your, your legal obligation. Clearly, after a while, they disappear off these instruments. Banknotes don't have a, an expiry date. Uh, well, in, in, uh, okay, I'm not, I'm not an expert on, on medieval bills. Okay. The real bills that we have now have an expiry date of six months. As far, well, that, that depends on your local jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. It may be different in, in um, Germany, Spain, but um, all of those countries being, being civil law countries, um, having been under Napoleon, I would say there wouldn't be much of a difference. So you're saying there's a legally imposed expiration? Or well, you would say that. You would say that. that doesn't mean they go uh, entirely to zero because then, I mean, that doesn't alleviate the debt. Well, no, yeah, it has to be paid, it has to yes. be passed in by then, so. Well, so, yes, you better. Yeah. That's an interesting thing to think about. Yeah, yeah, but there's not many court cases about it because it's it's such a thing. Th there is another one. I mean, here is this Professor Buter, that uh, Willem Buter. Um, I well, I would pronounce his name in the Dutch way, but um, he sees bearer instruments completely wrong. I've marked it in the text. Eh? Um, Yeah. Now, Willem Buter, um, oh, and, and looking at his references and credentials, I find it difficult to believe that he would say that um, a banknote is a bearer bond. I would. He says that in his text. I can't find it now. It's 55 pages, but he says that. 
And I thought, well, how do you get that idea? It's not paying any interest. No. So, so I thought that was odd. And it is, uh, that's how, I mean, money is in his, eye, in his eyes a non-interest-carrying bearer bond. And he, well, I've got a nice confession from him in this text because he, he says money is in fact an I owe you nothing in perpetuity. He says that on, in, in paper here. I mean, this is how the elite people think of money. Our money. That's how they think. And they even commit that to paper. I would call that, maybe it's my legal deformation, um, I would call that a confession. <laughs> uh, but he, he, you can, you mean, you can, you can actually make that paper go to zero value, and, and even make that a negative interest rate by by taxing it as it burns away in your hands. See, if you go back to the regular real bill, uh, it's the prepayment of it that determines the the, the, the rate of interest. Mm -hmm. so, yes, you know, discount. 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 I'm sorry, yes. the, the rate of discount, of, of course. Um, on date of maturity, it would be... Yeah, so if there's zero discount, nominal. there's no incentive you know, to prepay early. That goes away, so it's some kind of a different... Uh, something to think about a little bit. Maybe the professor would say something about this. <coughs> I'd like to make a, a rather general statement on the issue of gold and interest. And point out or focus my criticism of the mainstream Austrian school. I have always felt <coughs> that the theory of gold, because there is such a thing as theory of gold after all, on the part of the mainstream Austrian school, is defective. In fact, I would call it a kind of negative theory as opposed to a positive theory which I'm trying to advocate and I think NASE should advocate. And let me elaborate on that thought. Mises and even more so Hayek um, talk about gold and Hayek almost says, almost goes as far as saying that the gold standard is a necessary evil. Now he's not saying that, but he does say the next thing which is that there is really no need for the gold standard except for the fact that we cannot trust the government. So if you assume that we could trust the government, that would eliminate any need for a gold standard. And of course we know what he would like to put in place, competing private money, free banking. He talks about the denationalization of money. But just think for a moment. Is it really true 
that that's the only function of the gold standard to counterbalance the lack of trustworthiness of governments? Is that the only function of gold? Well, I don't think so. Well, Mises doesn't go as far as Hayek, but he does say that it is the temptation to tamper with the value of the monetary unit, which has made it necessary to have the gold standard. Now, this is not as extreme as Hayek, but it does say that, again, a negative thing, the temptation. And this is all true. I'm not saying that what Hayek suggests and Mises suggests are invalid. Not at all. But it, does, it doesn't go far enough by a large, for a long shot doesn't go far enough. There's much more in the gold standard idea than this negative idea of trying to protect yourself and society and especially widows and orphans. The biblical, the biblical injunction tormenting widows and orphans is a sin which cries to heaven for punishment, according to the Bible. Cry to heaven for punishment. It's the most extreme uh, sin, or among the most extreme sins which exist, tormenting widows and orphans who are quite helpless. They depend on their survival, what the deceased father left to them. And if you shortchange them, as the government does, then they will suffer. And they are completely innocent, and it's a sin that cries to heaven. So, you know, I'm all. Um, backing up this, but there is more to gold than all this negative uh, thing. So what is it? Well, in my view, there's no need to be apologetic about the gold standard. I, I feel that this negative theory of gold is like apologizing that we uh, take this barbarous relic and put it in the monetary system in a day and age when money can approach, approximate the speed of light, it could turn around as fast as that, which of course wasn't the case at the time of Adam Smith. He, Adam Smith, uh, when he talked about the wagon way in the sky, he profusely apologized for the violent metaphor he was using. Now today it doesn't look violent at all because uh, we have jet planes. <laughs> but uh, the point I'm making is that I'm sorry. 
the point I'm making is that um, we need a positive theory of gold, which brings out the positive role, which is in addition to this negative role. We, we grant that there is this negative role, but it's only part of it. There's also a positive role. And this really puts my criticism of not only Mises, but also Hayek, and a whole very distinguished line of thinkers going back all the way to David Ricardo. Because David Ricardo had a theory of gold, there's no question. And this was a, another very negative theory because it was, he is the father of what came to be known as the bullion gold or gold bullion standard. He advocated that there's a wonderful way of economizing with gold. Abolish gold coins, but retain the gold standard. However, the smallest unit in which you can withdraw gold from the system is the 400 pounds bar. Now this is 12 and one half kilogram approximately. And if you don't have the paper money in the value of 12 and a half kilograms of gold, then you're out of luck. You get nothing. And if you have more, well then you can benefit. You can, you see, this was taken seriously. It, I mean, Ricardo obviously didn't mean it as a joke, did he? No. <laughs> he meant he was that serious. And then actually, it so happened that Britain, in the year 1925, put the gold bullion standard into practice. Because the gold standard they introduced in Britain, by the way, you know who the uh, uh, secretary of the Exchequer was in 1925? Charlton Churchill. <laughs> Winston, yeah. Winston Churchill, yeah. you see. I mean, it's really incredible. It, it was without examining, just saying, oh, Ricardo said that must be a good idea, let's go ahead. We, we can go back to gold at the old parity. He, of course, he used the correct argument that we, Britain has to go back to the gold standard because Britain cannot disown those who entrusted their funds to the government, including widows and orphans. So that was the argument. But the idea of the gold bullion standard is not a good idea. It's actually a bad idea. So as I say, I'm criticizing not only Mises and Hayek and a number of other people, including Winston Churchill, and uh, David Ricardo, who, who realized the importance of gold. But I think he was on the wrong track.
Now, so what is the positive theory of gold which I am trying to advocate? There is a positive theory in addition to the negative theory. There's a positive theory. What it does say is that if you are consistently applying the ideas of Karl Menger, then you come up with a theory of gold and the theory of interest which make a contact. See, none of these people, Mises, Hayek, Ricardo, made a contact. There is gold and there is interest. No connection between the two. So I believe that Menger, if he had lived long enough to complete the second edition of uh, the uh, uh, Principles of Economics, his major work, which he was working on during the last decade of his life, and his son, who was a scholar in his own right, helped him. But it never came to be. It was never reached that stage that it could be published. And that's most unfortunate because I firmly believe that Menger would have included the theory of interest and he would have made the contact between gold and interest. Now earlier on in this course here we talked about two ideas which are so new that I have never put it in print before. I mentioned it orally here for the first time. And that's the uh, proto-sphere on the one hand and the lobo-sphere on the other. And there are several different points of contacts between these spheres. Now, for the benefit of those who missed my lecture, would somebody care to say in a few words or sentences what the proto-sphere is and what the logo-sphere is? Oh, there, there you are. Louis, Louis Boulanger from New Zealand, please. The proto-sphere is the, the world of materials, substance, um, living, living and 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 that or or lifeless yeah. um, resources goods uh, available and the logosphere logosphere is in the mind of human mind yeah reason reason human action arbitrage all this is part of the logosphere and not part of the proto-spheres. Biospheres, <coughs> minus human beings, is all part. It's all there. But when it comes to human reason, comes to human action, that's removed. And so there are various points of contact. And whenever there is a point of contact, 
the method, the old method of mathematical averaging is useless. And it would take me too far afield to explain why is it useless. Basically it's because the human reason would allow you, whether you do it consciously or unconsciously, tamper with your database, which falsifies the outcome. Now when it comes to the protosphere, there's no danger, because these are, whether it's lifeless, like the geosphere, or it is life is involved, as in the biosphere, but the, what is missing is reason. So there is no danger that the database will be f falsified while you do make the calculation. However, when the contact arises between the logosphere and the protosphere, then there is a danger. So anyhow, this is uh, my starting point that we have to uh, distinguish between the method of averaging, that's mathematical, which is not only perfectly applicable, but it's extremely useful to create new concepts on the one hand. And on the other hand, there is this uh, logosphere where that same method is useless. In fact, it's a source of falsification. And what we have instead, thanks to Manger, is the method of marginalism. When you talk about marginal productivity of labor, or marginal productive capital, or marginal time preference, or marginal liquidity preference, what have you, that's not averages. Far from it. It's a method of marginalism. And we have had several lectures on giving different examples of that. So here we go. We need a new method. And this new method is the method of marginalism. And if you bring that in, then you have a proper theory of gold. Which is no longer negative, it's very positive. Because the very concept of marginal time preference explains as we heard it earlier in Sandeep's lecture the floor of the range in which the interest rate varies okay this is the uh, marginal uh, time preference where at the point where the marginal bondholder becomes active and he is going to do his job and what is his job? His job is arbitrage arbitrage between what markets? Well, 
please say it. What markets is the marginal bondholder doing the arbitrage? On the one hand, and the gold market on the other. And there is no two ways about it. Because uh, you might say, oh, wonderful thing that human beings have this innate idea of originary interest and they express it in different ways. But no matter how you express it, it's still just a pious wish. You wish the interest rate was higher than the government uh, wants it or the banks want it. Uh, but it's still just a wish. But bring in the marginal bondholder. Bring in marginal time preference. Bring in the a point of contact between the protosphere and the logosphere. At the moment you do, you, you give marginal time preference teeth. And these are golden teeth. And they do bite. <laughs> because if you as the marginal bondholder, but it could be just the marginal saver, you withdraw gold coins from the monetary system, then bank reserves shrink and the banks will be forced to call in their loans or some of them, so credit will contract and it will continue to contract until the marginal saver is satisfied and say, all right, now I feel safe, I feel confident, I put my gold back to the banks and that will allow the economy to expand as far as it is safe. But if you remove gold wholesale from the monetary system like they did during the 20th century, the two dates to remember is 1933 under a, Democrat, a democratic president, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And the other memorable date is what? 1971. When a Republican President of the United States by the name of Nixon. Richard Nixon removed gold. Uh, Roosevelt removed it domestically but still left the international uh, monetary system to operate on the basis of gold. And how many years later? Barely 40, uh, 35 years later, it was uh, Richard Nixon who then pulled the rug from underneath of the international system, abolished any contact with gold. 